0: So the true confessions portion of the day, who's having a hard time? <laughs> okay, that was to break any projection for those of you who thought that the person you're sitting nearby who looks like they're having a really easy time, to show you that they may not be doing that. I also wanted to, to um, talk tonight about when practice gets difficult and um, the the difficult energies or what we call the hindrances that get in our way of practice. And it's hard, you know, just especially if you're new and you're not used to going through the process that happens in the early part of a retreat, it's difficult. You're meeting difficult um, things inside your body, inside your mind, inside your heart. You're up against a lot and What happens gradually over time is we gain facility with our ability to be with whatever is arising. But initially, it's hard. And for those of you who've been practicing a long time, you know also that it can be hard, particularly the first few days of the retreat. So just in case you thought you were a mess, I brought um, this little story from a young woman. It's from a book called Holy Cow an Indian adventure by a woman named Sarah McDonald. And um, she's, she, she tells a story. She goes to live in India for a year with her boyfriend. And during the course of it, she's kind of trying to be open to spiritual exploration, but not very well. And um, at one point, she decides to do a 10-day retreat, which is a Goenka retreat, for those of you who are familiar with that. And she calls this chapter Insane in the Membrane. <laughs> She said, I decided to start my quest for inner peace with a brain enema. <laughs> Can you relate? <laughs> she was very, very nervous about coming here, coming to the retreat. She said, on the train, I had nightmares of the horrors of being alone inside my own head. I saw my mouth bursting with forbidden words and my body gripped in a straitjacket surrounded by white coats My friends' laughs and warnings echoed in my head. Few think I'll make it, and one even offered me a case of beer for every day I survive. (laughs) So I'll bring some of her experiences into this talk, and it'll probably make you feel better. (laughs) So these hindrances, these difficult energies that we meet in our practice... um, you know, sometimes I think we're about walking down a path and then there are obstacles in the path and it's hard to get there because we trip and we fall over brambles or some kind of uh, boulder or something in the road. And so it's, what's important with the hindrances is really just to get to know them so that we can recognize them faster. So when they, um, they hijack us or they, we spend the entire day lost in them, we recognize them and we can begin to recognize them faster. We also can learn not to take them so personally and how to work with them when they arise. So the first one um, is, this, is the hindrance or the difficult energy of sense, desire, or wanting wanting. And interestingly enough, this woman does not have much desire. She's a lot of hating. She hates everything. So I'm looking, trying to find something where she was wanting something, except for wanting to get out of the retreat. That was about it. <laughs> so sense, desire. Um, there there are often these water similes that I think are very interesting that are used in the text of ways of understanding what, what desire is like in the mind. And in terms of water, it's likened to dye being like a pretty colored dye in the mind. It's beautiful. It's like this bright blue or bright red. And it kind of confuses the mind but actually what we're looking for is to kind of see beneath it and it's often hard to see beneath. So We call this hindrance sense-desire, wanting things at the five sense doors. Something pleasant, uh, something in taste or smell or touch or a pleasant thought or a pleasant sound or a pleasant sight. Our mind gets attracted to things and starts moving outwards and wanting them. It's a natural response to things being pleasurable. So we experience something as pleasurable, and then we think we want it, and we want more of it, and then we start to get kind of caught in it, and our mind can begin to go off into a million different fantasies and visions and imaginings and things that we want, how we want it to be, and so it's any kind of mental pursuit, and sometimes even physical pursuit, a wanting that takes us out of the present moment and moves us, propels us into some other experience that's not the present, that's not what we're being mindful of here. So it might be in the past, it might be remembering an incredible meal you had or this person you're in love with, or it might be in the future, something that you're wanting to do, a fantasy, and it might even just be in the present, like, oh, if I just could have one more bite of this eggplant parmesan then I'll be really happy you know it's, it's just ah, I'm not with this eggplant parmesan that's on my plate I'm already thinking about what's coming so that's the kind of gross level of it but oftentimes we experience it in our practice as very subtle so it can be it, thinking itself can be pleasant It's very interesting, but notice when you're caught in thinking and you actually really enjoy the experience and don't want to come back to your breathing because the thinking itself is so interesting. Or sometimes it manifests in the form of wanting um, a better meditation. Or you had a meditation a few hours ago that was the best meditation you've ever had and you just spend the next sitting trying to get it back. This is all wanting, sense, desire. So the mind takes you out of the present experience into an imagined future that oftentimes doesn't pan out. So, for example, I was a few years ago, actually more than a few years ago, many years ago, I was meditating on a long retreat. And I had a lot of energy, so I was up quite a bit at night, and I used to kind of wander around the retreat center trying to occupy myself. I wasn't meditating very much at that point, at that point in the day. And one of the things I discovered was that if you walked into the kitchen, this is not a recommendation to do this. <laughs> I'm just telling you what I did. If you walked into the kitchen, you could find the menu, what was planning, what was coming up. So I walked into the kitchen, I found the menu, and I saw, it was maybe it was Tuesday, One day I went, and it was Tuesday, and I saw that Friday was pizza. So I got very, very excited. (laughs) Because, you know, there's not that much to get excited about here on retreat. So I spent a few days just... I wasn't meditating. I was thinking about pizza, and I was imagining it. And this retreat center, they made their own crust, and they put all these incredible things on it. I just kept thinking about it, thinking about it, not meditating... Finally, Friday comes. I was so excited. I went down to, to lunch, and I sort of stood out there. I didn't want to be first in line because I didn't want to look like I was too greedy. So I went to about third in line. And then I waited so I could get a good piece, you know. And I waited, and I was just like, oh, pizza, pizza. And I got my plate, and it was just wonderful. And I went out and sat down under this beautiful tree and was ready to eat. And I put the pizza in my mouth, and it was pizza. It was pizza. I mean, it was cheese and tomato sauce and bread and some things on top. It was such an interesting moment for me to see how my mind had spent days and days getting caught in this fantasy, this desire, this wanting of something that when I got it was just, you know, it was okay. It was fine. But it allowed me then to look at the ways that I project onto things and assume they're going to be a lot better than they are. Now, sometimes things do pan out, and they are maybe as good as we think they're going to be, but then sometimes, then we end up getting hungry for more. So we had this great meal today, and then we started thinking, oh, I wonder what's going to be for tea, you know? Our minds just do this. There's this natural kind of pleasant experience wanting more of the pleasant and going for it. And then sometimes we get something, and we realize we didn't want it anyway. Have you ever had a relationship like that? <laughs> you know, George Bernard Shaw said, um, "Suffering is not getting what you want, and getting it." <laughs> so, just a reminder about this this hindrance. It's not wanting is not the object itself. Okay. Sometimes we misplace. We think that this thing has everything that we want. But it's actually, it's this underlying automatic feeling, this response to the pleasantness of the situation. And we think it's in the object. It's kind of like this clutching of our hearts towards this thing that takes us out of the present moment that we think is going to make us happy. Sometimes people ask, you know, what's the problem? I've been meditating. I've been having such incredible thoughts. I've been thinking all these things. I got so creative. I wrote the next great novel. I wrote a play. I did, you know, and it's true, you know, fantasy or um, sense desire can be quite fun. But it's not exactly what we're doing here, right? It takes us out of the direct experience of the present moment it also can be really painful. I don't know if any of you have ever had the experience of the Vipassana romance. You fall in love with someone you've never actually talked to or met and suddenly there's this all this desire. I've had that experience and it was so painful because every time I do walking meditation and they'd walk past me, I'd think, oh my god, Are they looking at me? What am I going to do? This is horrible. My mind would just go off in a million different directions, worry, fear, anxiety, all around this desire that I was carrying. So it's not not always so pleasant, and it's interesting to investigate whether the desire really is pleasant. Working with it. This practice, as we know, is about letting go. This is really the crux of what the Buddha was teaching. It's the practice of not clinging to anything as me or mine, letting go. So when we're experiencing the desire in our bodies and minds, we can really just be with that feeling. What does it feel like? What's happening in the heart? What's happening in our body? We can just be present, oh, there's desire. We can name it fantasizing, desire, wanting. Really seeing it in that process, there is a disidentification that can occur, a little bit of space. Oh, it's just wanting. It's not this horrible, it's not like we have to get that pizza to be happy. It's just wanting arising in our mind, taking us away from the present moment. So we can use that word wanting as a note or desire, sense desire. We can, if it's very repetitive, we can note exactly what it is. For instance, I could have been noting pizza, pizza, pizza. I didn't, but I could have. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on our motivation. Why are we here? Well, I could be here to think about all the things that I really am excited about, or I could be here to learn this incredible practice, this gift that is being offered So with all of these hindrances, really the first step is this acknowledgement, knowing that it's here, being with it. Okay, it's just wanting. It's just desire. It's not something that's going to overwhelm you or something that you should revolve your life around. It's just desire arising in our minds. So the second hindrance is the hindrance of aversion the opposite of desire. So there's wanting everything, then there's hating everything. So oftentimes we go back and forth careening between them, and there's, there's five of them, right, as, we, as many of us know, and sometimes we have what's called multiple hindrance attacks, where you're hating something, but you're wanting something, you're, in rest, you're restless, you're doubting, you're sleepy, you're miserable, it, it's all up there. So aversion, aversion is, um, in the water analogy, it's considered to be like boiling water, where the water is turbulent, and you can't see down to the bottom because it's boiling so fast. Aversion can be very, on a gross level, we can be just hating everything. You can be walking around just thinking, oh, that person's bugging me, and I hate meditating, and this is horrible, and what are those teachers saying, and the food, and uh, you know, that's like a very gross level of aversion. I know for me, when I come on retreat, The first day, sometimes day and a half, I hate everything. I do. I hate it. I think to myself, and I've been meditating, I don't know, almost 20 years. And I think, why did I ever come here? I must be crazy. I really have that thought going through my head. And then about a day or so later, oh, that's right. Now I remember. So it's almost like you have to go, or for me, I have to go through a process of being with the hating in that it's okay. It's just hating. So sometimes the aversion is on the level of we're feeling fear, we're feeling grief, we're feeling anger. It could be past, it could be present, it could be future. It could be this whole range of hating-type experiences, It might be pain, we're feeling pain in our body and instead of just being with the pain and noticing the sensations, like Philip was pointing to today, we're hating the pain. Because whereas wanting comes from this pleasant feeling at this pleasant experience that we go after, the aversion comes from this unpleasant experience or unpleasant (laughs) uh, mental or physical experience that we wanna push away. So we're feeling pain and we just think, oh, this is the worst experience of my life. I can't barely attend to, I can't be with this. This is just aversion coming in response to unpleasant experience. When it's more subtle, you know, it's obvious when you're walking around hating everyone and everything. Although sometimes we don't know because we're so in it, we don't realize we're in it. But when it's more subtle, it can be this, just this, general like vague sense that things are not okay. You know this slight resistance. Sometimes it's very obvious resistance but sometimes it's a really subtle resistance like this experience is not enough. So notice that if you feel that in your practice if there's just something slightly off there might be a little level of aversion to it in your mind. So here are some of Sarah's experiences with aversion. Today I'm feeling very dizzy and faint and I have a horrific headache from coffee withdrawal. My bowels are also missing caffeine and it seems I'm not the only one. Everyone is scoffing tablespoons of laxatives. How are we meant to cleanse our brains when our bodies are as clogged as India's toilets? I'm also suffering sensory deprivation and feeling exhausted beyond all tiredness. And I realize now why there's a vow not to kill. (laughs) There's a mad Indian down the hill who's been yelling some political slogan through a distorted loudspeaker for four hours. I'm meant to be cultivating tolerance and infinite compassion, and all I can think about is how I'd like to murder him. Sometimes um, aversion arises with layers of aversion. So, for instance, we're hating an experience, and then we're hating the fact that we hate it, and then we hate ourselves for hating the fact that we hate it, and it just can pile up. So it's interesting if you notice that happening to, um, to just notice, oh, there's a layer of aversion on top of a layer of aversion and so on, because that can be quite helpful to sort of break the aversion spell. It's the opposite of the feeling of connection. When, we, when we're in aversion, everything feels distant. People feel distant. Experiences feel distant. It's not this sense of sort of the, the metta, which has that quality of moistness, of connecting. It's the opposite of that. We can work with it by becoming aware of it. So just noticing the aversion. How does the aversion feel in the body? What is the direct experience of it? Can we be with it? Can we be with resistance? If we're having an experience and we hate the experience, can we be with hating the experience? You don't have to try to be with the experience itself because you hate it and that's really bad. But just that level of not, not liking the experience is something we can investigate we can also bring metta into our practice at times when we're feeling a lot of aversion. You know, it's a great opportunity to just turn that lens of metta on ourselves. May I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I get through this? You know, metta is well, that probably has a tinge of aversion in it, actually. <laughs> but metta is is a wonderful. Um, it, it just can be integrated into the vipassana practice, as I think we've been talking about. One of the ways that self, that hatred um, or aversion manifests is in aversion towards ourself. And one of the later hindrances, as many of you know, is doubt. And so self-doubt and aversion can kind of combine together to create this really, really pernicious hindrance that we in the West in particular suffer from, which is self-hatred. This self-hatred, it's so... It, it, its I just see it everywhere. I hear it everywhere. It's not so much in, say, this room. but It may be in this room, but it's also in the culture at large. And um, it's not even unique to us. And so I'm going to read you this story, and you have to listen kind of closely to it to understand it. So Marie is doing Alice's hair when along comes Tanya, a mutual acquaintance. Tanya has the perfect life A great body, well-behaved children, primo social status. Watching her walk by, Alice admires her beauty, then relaxes into the pleasant sensation of Marie's hands arranging her hair. Marie, by contrast, nearly explodes with jealousy and competitiveness. Her teeth and stomach clench as she watches Tanya flaunt her long limbs, thick hair, and most enviable of all, her huge rose-red rump. Tanya, Marie, and Alice are baboons. (laughs) So (laughs) I just want to continue on with the monkey theme from last night. (laughs) They're social primates who share around 95% of our DNA and a lot of our psychological traits. Scientists have found that some baboons, like Marie, are extremely competitive. Others, like Alice, more mellow, less worried about measuring up. The more rank-conscious baboons suffer, higher blood pressure, a stress-related condition we associate with driven, competitive humans. It's very interesting. It's this, it, it feels very universal, this sense. It, so it could be this hatred, self-hatred turned on ourself. It may be competitiveness, comparing with other people. We may be feeling aversion. Oh, that person's been sitting so much better than I've been sitting, and they're much better at meditating, and who am I, and what do I know, and I'm bad, and they're, there's just this constant, there can be a constant mm, just quality of getting at ourselves. You know, I've even heard an interview with Meryl Streep where she said, I think I'm a really bad actress. Meryl Streep. So it's, it's this, um, this not liking, this aversion that sort of turned on ourselves that can be so difficult. And the way that we're mean to each other, if people were mean to us the way we're mean to ourselves sometimes, we wouldn't let them get away with it. But we let ourselves say, I'm bad, I'm a lousy meditator, I'm lazy, I should have gotten up for the Qigong, what was I thinking, I'm so bad. You know, This just goes endlessly on in our minds often when we're meditating. And this practice is a wonderful opportunity to observe, in a sense, as a laboratory, the way that we do this to ourselves. The way that we create these, these voices come into our hearts and minds and attack us, in a sense. This is Sarah's attack. I've heard the Dalai Lama warn that, warned that too many Westerners come out of meditation retreats thinking they are the Buddha. My self-image is not that good. <laughs> I think I'm Sally Field and Sybil. LAUGHTER with a major multiple personality disorder. (laughs) Conducting my own psychotherapy, I half hope for repressed childhood memories and all I come up with are ABBA and Kiss songs. (laughs) Scary, right? So it's so important to begin the process of developing compassion for ourselves, for seeing the way that we beat ourselves up, that we try, so many of us were trying so hard to do well, both in here and out of here, and then there's these voices that come in. So, of course, the first practice with self-hatred is just noticing it. One of the things I often recommend is counting it, how many times do you count, Do you judge yourself? Self judgment one, self judgment two, self judgment 20, and it's still about seven in the morning, right? Um, I once gave that practice to a bunch of young girls around 12, 13, and they said, and I, I gave it to them in one month, and the next month they came back, and um, one of them said, 1,694. <laughs> and I said, I, I had forgotten. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> And she said, Well, I was counting my judgments. But then I started counting other people's judgments. And then evidently she was counting any kind of judgment arose. But that's, it's a lot of judgments. I was recently uh, teaching mindfulness. I had about an hour to teach to a group of young girls, uh, young women, 12 to 18, in an eating disorder clinic. And I only had an hour. And so I thought to myself, if I have an hour, what can I do that would really, you know, what could really make an impact? And I thought, well, if I could just teach them that they're not their thoughts, you know, that when a thought arises that says I'm fat or I'm unworthy or I'm bad, could they just see it as a thought? And so I told them a story. We did a, we did a lot of, um, not a lot, we did, a, we did some sitting and so, just some breath meditation. We ended with quite a bit of meadow that ended up being very, very helpful, actually. The is wonderful for them. But in the middle, I talked a bit about how we can work with our thoughts and not take them so personally. And I told a story that I often like to tell, which is that um, a friend of mine was meditating on a long retreat, and she was having a huge attack of self-hatred. And she was, she was outside doing walking meditation, thinking, I'm so bad, I'm the worst person in the world. And this little chipmunk came up to her. And she knelt down to sort of look closer at it, very mindfully and slowly, and the chipmunk ran away. And she thought in her mind, I am so bad, even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so she went to see her teacher soon after, and he said, how are you doing? She said, I'm having a horrible time. I'm such a bad person. Even the chipmunks hate me. And he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. And she got it, you know, in that moment. She got that the way that was a thought. So I told this story to these young women who had no meditation background, and I tell this story, and there was dead silence And someone said, I don't get it. (laughs) And I thought, oh, no, I was being too ambitious. I was teaching this sort of deeper concept in a very short amount of time. And another girl said, I don't get it. And there was this sort of blank look around the room. And um, this one girl said, I get it. (laughs) And she looked to me. She was probably 13. She was really tiny. And I said, oh, well, can you explain it to us, please? (laughs) And she said, Well, some thoughts have an emotional charge to them, and some thoughts don't. (laughs) And that thought that you hate yourself is very emotional, but we can learn to see it just like a thought, the sky is blue. (laughs) And I was just so happy, and all the girls smiled and got it, and I thought, I said to her, oh, would you like to teach meditation? (laughs) She didn't look too happy about it, but... um, But getting that is so key, it's so central to this practice of not identifying with these thoughts, particularly the thoughts that cause the dukkha, the thoughts that say we're no good. So I'll move on to another hindrance. This is the hindrance of sleepiness, sloth, and torpor which I'm sure none of you have experienced <laughs> today, right? Um, we know, we're all familiar with sitting, seeing someone in front of us with their head bobbing down and sort of waking up and being startled. Um, oh, let's see what Sarah said. She said, why am I wasting 10 days of my life learning to sleep sitting up? <laughs> There you go. And maybe that's enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> sleepiness. We relate. Okay. <laughs> it's really, really, really common. Particularly when we come, come from our busy, crazy lives and we show up here and we finally stop. And we sit and it's just, it just, it's our sleep catches up with us. That may be what it is for some of us. Sometimes it's not so obviously sleepiness, but it's more of kind of a sinking mind that's kind of half there and dreams are sort of floating through. And sometimes it's it's just a fog. I mean, there's all these versions of, of it. Usually we talk about three different kinds of sleepiness. So there's the sleepiness that's just that you haven't had enough sleep. You know, you're tired, your life is busy, that I just talked about. The second is a sleepiness or a sloth and torpor that arises from um, imbalanced energy. So that you have, your mind actually might be quite concentrated, but you don't have enough energy to support the level of concentration So your mind can start to feel like it's sinking, and it's kind of there's no support for it. So if that's the case, you can really, if you notice that, you can bring up the energy and see if that helps. You might go do some vigorous walking meditation and really get yourself going. The third kind of sleepiness is a sleepiness that's sort of a defense mechanism. Like we're feeling sleepy because there might be something else we don't want to feel, and that may just be that it takes some time. So maybe there's sadness or grief or fear or something. And so it may be hard for you to experience on your own. And you can, from time to time, if you notice there's a lot of sleepiness, or if you notice there's a lot of restlessness, you could, it, it, might, it works the same way. You can just ask yourself, is there something here I don't want to feel? And see what happens. With sleepiness, noticing the sleepiness, same as always, feeling it, really getting it, feeling what it feels like in the body, being with it, learning to just be, oh, it's sleepiness. Sleepiness has come. It's entered my meditation. It's a visitor. It's not personal. It's just sleepiness. You can also do a few strategies. Like I said, you can do some fast walking. You can... Open your eyes and sit, do meditation with your eyes open, kind of downcast. You can do standing meditation. You've been doing a lot of standing with Tija in the Qigong, so you can bring that into your sitting practice and just stand and notice your body, notice the sensations, and that can bring quite a lot of energy and interest to it. So, oh, I forgot to say that sleepiness is like a pond covered with algae. Does that resonate, right? It just feels like you can't quite see through anything. It's just, you're, it's, it's just all this kind of mushy, gushy stuff on the top of the pond. So the opposite of sleepiness is the restlessness, and that's when the pond is windswept, the surface is agitated, it's, there's just a lot of energy, and um, we experience this, a lot of energy. The pond has a lot of wind moving through or over it. Restlessness. Ah, right? You just want to run screaming from the room because your body feels so antsy and so crazy. Your body might feel like it's jumping out of your skin, or like there's ants crawling all over you, or there's you know, just energy, energy through the body. Or your mind feels like, your mind is having obsessive thoughts, careening thoughts, worrying, imagining, fear. Restlessness also is grouped with worry. So it's restlessness and worry. So anytime you're worrying obsessively, this is this hindrance. Here's Sarah's restlessness. Here we go. Wonderland is within. I'm hyperactive and insane. One thought leads to something ridiculously unrelated and never comes back to the first. My thoughts don't make sense or come to any conclusions or insights. And there's rarely one thought at once. There are layers of boring, repetitive craze snippets. I'm regurgitating memories, plans, information, music, movies, friends' episodes, Doctor Who highlights, and daydreams. It's mayhem in there. Today, I realize that my brain is beyond mad. It's now sprouting huge paragraphs from novels I've never read using (laughs) language I don't even understand. Unfortunately, it doesn't last, and I come out of the meditations as moronic as I go in. I feel like I'm on drugs, but there's no one to bring me back to Earth or to share the experience with. My brain is so desperate for friends, it started talking to itself, taking on male and female characters with strong accents and weird (laughs) attitudes. I feel like I'm trapped in a TV episode of Survivor Spiritualists. The last one left gets enlightened. (sighs) When restlessness is a bit more subtle... It's less this kind of careening thoughts and busyness of mind, and it's more this inability for the attention to rest on the object. So your mind might be quite quiet and still, but it's just like it's not quite landing. It it's, it's, it's might be kind of sliding off your breath, or you just quite, can't quite get at it. It's a quality of restlessness. Or sometimes, how about the song stuck in your head? Ever had that one? <laughs> Well, that can be also like a restlessness vibration in your body-mind. And the song kind of clomps onto it. So it's just, it's just a matter of kind of seeing it, knowing that you're caught in it. And then, of course, we can work with it. Oftentimes, aversion couples with restlessness. We're hating something because it's, our minds are so restless. We're hating the experience. So it's important to look at if you're hating the fact that you're restless working with it. I once was on a long retreat and I was having a huge amounts of energy in my body. It was just, I just had so much energy. Restlessness is kind of my hindrance. I really know it quite well. And um, I, I, it was late at night. I couldn't sleep. I had been up for hours and hours and hours. And so I started thinking, all right, what am I going to do? And so I started doing these really, I started running around the parking lot outside. And I started running around in circles thinking, oh, maybe that'll work and get rid of my restlessness. And then I ran. I, what did I do? Oh, I went and I started doing intense yoga. I thought, okay, that'll get rid of it. And then I thought, okay, that's not working. And I ran out into the woods. And then I thought I saw a wild cougar or something. And I got really scared, which is silly, because it was in Massachusetts. And I ran back. And finally, it was morning at that point. (laughs) So I went in to see my teacher. And I said, having a lot of energy and strong restlessness. And um, he said, what did you do? And I said, well, I tried running. I tried yoga, I tried taking a hike in the woods, and none of it worked. And he looked at me and he said, well, did you try sitting with it? (laughs) And I thought, oh, it just never occurred to me. (laughs) So this is the instruction, actually. (laughs) It's not to get out of it, but it's actually to be in it and see what it's like. Get to know a mind and body of restlessness. We experience this outside the retreat all the time. And if we can experience it inside the retreat, we can know how to be with it so that we can take it out into our lives when we're restless, when we're filled with worry and anxiety. There are ways that you can work with it more specifically. You can, um, you can either try to get more, bring your, bring your noting or your mindfulness and make it more precise and refined, So sometimes just the act of putting a little effort can calm down the energy. And sometimes what it needs is this wide spaciousness. So you might want to, you can try that one. If that doesn't work, you can try the opposite, which is opening up and really letting in sound, and you can even open your eyes and just let the energy be there in the midst of this field of all these things going on. And sometimes that can allow you to be more present with it. If your mind is worrying a lot, you can you could ask it to not worry right now. You could say, oh, I'm in the middle of meditation. Would you mind worrying in about 10 minutes or later on? It, sometimes this works. This is a very good strategy for people who worry, and then they forget to worry later. <laughs> so that can be helpful. <laughs> One of the things that I discovered, this was a big insight for me, was that worry, inherent in this in the worry, is the belief that if I worry about it, it'll make it better, which is... Obviously not true, but seeing that, having, I, I, I saw that and I realized that the act of worrying is something I do to soothe myself, but it actually doesn't, it has the opposite effect. So really investigating the worry, seeing what's there is quite a um, useful practice. Guilt is often a good a nice form of restlessness. We can feel lots of guilt. oh i didn't i I slept too i s- uh you know, I didn't go to bed early enough, and then I woke up too late. oh, I skipped a sitting, I'm so bad, I'm a horrible meditator. then we go back into aversion. So if you notice guilt, it's just another it can be another form of restlessness and aversion. One year, I had lots of guilt for sleeping too late the honor meditation retreat, and I would wake up in the morning, and the first thing that would happen is I would look at the clock, and the second thing that would happen was my mind would go, oh my God, I'm such a bad meditator. I'm so lazy. I feel so guilty. I overslept. I missed the sit. And this would happen continuously each day. You know, the next morning I'd wake up, I'd look at the clock. If I, it was on time, it wouldn't happen. But if I, but if it, I was on... It, Anyway, if I missed the setting, I would the guilt would arise automatically. And it was such an interesting thing to begin to observe that and see that this is an automatic response. This is just there are conditions that are coming in and that and then guilt arises. And one morning I woke up, I looked at the clock and a voice in my head said, "Here it comes." And then the next thing that happened, "Oh, you're so lazy, I can't believe." That. And then I thought, "Oh, okay. It doesn't have to control me so much. Practice is great. You know, we really can learn to work with our minds in ways that just can be so freeing. So the last one is, the last hindrance is doubt. And this is like water when when muddied. So muddy water, it's it's obscured. The ability to see clearly is obscured. And doubt can be quite pernicious, and can really take over. And we can be lost in this whole set of doubts about things, and we believe it's real, you know, because we're doubting it. So we've lost our sense of of what is true. And we might be doubting ourselves, like the self doubt that I talked about earlier. We might be doubting us. We might be doubting, um, you know, the Buddha. You might. I mean, there's so many possibilities of ways of doubting yourself. And so it's really, really important to catch the doubt. I think her entire essay is doubt, so I'm not going to read that. <laughs> but um, the doubt is, ways of working with doubt are just to notice that doubt is arising. And I want to also distinguish the doubt that, is, that confuses us from a doubt that can be quite helpful So if you're practicing and you start thinking, well, I'm really curious about this, but I'm not sure really how this might work in my life, that's actually a pretty smart doubt. Or I've heard from the teachers that if I let go, I'm going to be happier, but I haven't yet experienced that. I'm going to check that out. This is a wise kind of doubt. It's more of a questioning. The doubt that's a hindrance is the doubt that really kind of gnaws at us and gets at us and makes us really miserable in a sense. So recognizing doubt as doubt, feeling it, noticing it. How does it feel in our body? What are the thoughts that keep arising? Remembering our motivation. Why are we here? So if you're really lost in a lot of doubt and you think that you want to just throw in the towel, see if you can connect back in to the reason why you came. What brought you to this place? Why did you want to learn meditation? Sometimes that really can... uh, can change our relationship to doubt. Seeing the doubt as thought again, it is—it's just another thought, like the chipmunk thought, like the sky is blue. It's just doubt. So that's that was. Um, these five hindrances, kind of an overview. And I'll just say a few more things about the hindrances that I think are important for our practice and for our life. Because the hindrances, they're not just here on meditation retreat. They're everywhere, right? We're experiencing them when at home. We're experiencing them with our family, with our job. The key is to begin to, uh, to recognize them, and then we can recognize them in our lives. And so, you know, I work with them all the time. They're not, to me, just on the meditation. For instance, I was working on, like an hour or two ago, I was walking up the driveway, and all the cars are parked in a certain place, and I couldn't see my car. And suddenly this voice in my head said, oh my God, someone stole your car. <laughs> now has a car, has a car ever been stolen from Spiro Rock? <laughs> of course not. And so it was. So, so at first, for about a, a 30 seconds, I kind of thought, oh, no, someone stole my car. Where is my car? I, could, I couldn't see it. That was the problem. And, um, and then, because I've been thinking about this talk, and also because I work with it in my life, I thought, Diana, this is just worry. It's just worry. It's a thought. It's a fear. And so I sort of felt in my body the fear. And as I got closer, there, of course, was my car there was nothing to worry about but it just it's so practical it's so useful for bringing it into our lives and learning to work with it catching seeing it seeing anxiety seeing when you're caught in hatred when you're so angry at someone when you're so when you're wanting something that isn't as it is when there's so much application for the hindrances and this is kind of a side note but i sometimes wonder about what are the hindrances of our world the, like how do they manifest in the culture again they're everywhere the 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 desire the greed the the intense materialism of the culture is like the hindrance of greed the materialism the consumerism the avarice this is this is the hindrance manifesting on a global level or aversion manifesting as war and violence or Re- or sleepiness manifesting as the way we kind of self-medicate and check out, and the media sort of checks us out from from uh, our ability to feel empowered, or um, you know television and film, you know everything that ta- that takes us out of that that sort of medicates us or puts us to sleep. And then the restlessness, the hindrance of the distractedness of our lives, the busyness, the craziness, the speed. It's this ongoing hindrance of restlessness, a restless culture that we live in. And then the doubt, the way I look at it is kind of the epidemic of self-doubt. It's just, it's massive. It's everywhere. So it's interesting because when we think about it on that level, there's a question of, well, how do we work with it? Can we use what we're learning from meditation to think about the culture as a whole? And I just throw it out there not for a lot of reflection about it, but just because I think that the applications to the hindrances are much wider than we sometimes think. So is our goal to... Get rid of all the hindrances and have a very pure, clear, mindful mind that sees completely clearly? I guess the answer is sort of, but sort of not. (laughs) This is where Buddhists are great, they're really into paradox, you know, the goalless goal. So, on one hand, we are trying to, um, we're learning to work with the hindrances. And then as we work with the hindrances, they begin to get more subdued. They get to a place that's a little more in abeyance, and we can see more clearly. And that happens, and that's concentration developing. As we get more concentrated, the hindrances kind of calm down. We can see more clearly. So there is a process. There's a movement towards freedom from the hindrances, at least temporarily, But at the same time, the hindrances will continue to arise throughout the life of our practice and our lives in general. And so really, at the same time, what we're trying to cultivate is this quality of mind that can be present and free in the midst of everything, Okay, in the midst of these hindrances. We can be free in the midst of anger. We can be free in the midst of sorrow. We can be free in the midst of really wanting something so badly. It is possible to find freedom, to not be so identified, not taking it so personally. It's possible. So I'll just, and I just wanted you not to believe that Sarah was completely pathetic. (laughs) And just to follow a bit on what Jack was talking about last night, this innate compassion that is within us, this ability to to access our inner wisdom and our inner radiance. And that one of the forms of that is a manifestation of compassion. So in the midst of all the careening hindrances that attack us and that we find ourselves in, we often find these moments of space and freedom amidst it. And sometimes it's while we're having it, sometimes it's when they're a little bit more uh, cleared out. And sometimes it's after retreat. (laughs) And sometimes, you you just never know when this is gonna come upon, when freedom is gonna come, we just actually never know when that's gonna happen because it's really, it's accessible in any moment. So the compassion can come as a form of our own radiance, of our inner radiance manifesting. And this is um, what's happened to Sarah finally when she left. I skip out the gates down the hill and back into India on air. My mind is clear. My heart is open. Everyone is beautiful. Everyone is worth loving. The world is wonderful, and I feel universal love and compassion for all. Um, For the first time in my life, I'm living in the moment. I no longer miss my job, perhaps because my need for outward success to feed the ego has diminished. I go to an internet cafe and read emails, ring friends, and leave hysterical rants on their answering machine. This is not recommended, but anyway. Um, But within an hour, my peace of mind is challenged. At the bus stop in the town of Dharamsala, a beggar boy begins to hassle me. I stop look into his eyes, and then give him the dinner I bought for the train trip. An old Tibetan monk watching starts clapping and laughing. The boy and I join in. An ordinary Indian begging transaction that normally makes me feel depressed and guilty has become a human and humane exchange of laughter and true compassion. Sure, I haven't saved his life, but it feels like a greater gift than the money handed over out of some guilt, anger, and resignation. I definitely feel as if something shifted and I'm ready to be reborn. So let's Thank you. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 12, 2005. It is an offering of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.